Good afternoon. This is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to connect and inspire. I'm here with a, another excellent guest today, Hunter. Hi. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? I am a third-year neuroscience pre-med major, and I study the relationship between the neuroimmune system and depression. I didn't know you were a pre-med major, too. Yeah. That's awesome. What specialty do you want to do um, in the future? I'd like to focus on mental illness, mm-hmm. and there's a big like, new emerging field in medicine. It's circadian medicine. Circadian medicine? Yeah. What would a medical professional in circadian medicine be called? Not entirely sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's still to be determined. Maybe, maybe you can be the, the one to make up uh, or to name that position. Maybe. I don't think. I will, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Well, yeah, go in uh, depth a little bit more about your most recent research projects. So I'm still working on uh, finishing everything, but the general idea is that stress like, is heavily related with the development of um, neurological disorders such as like anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And the lab I was in is looking into a possible mechanism behind depression and this would be related through the immune system and so there are these signaling molecules called cytokines that are um, have a huge role in the immune system and they also directly communicate with the nervous system specifically through the vagus nerve which is all throughout your body okay like head to toe yeah it's a cranial nerve cranial nerve 10 and it largely controls your motor, motor function. So okay. being able to move your hand, that's your vagus nerve. Yeah. And it also has sensory information passed up back to the brain. Interesting. So from what I understand, the mechanism you're talking about is stress would trigger the immune system, which then affects depression? Yeah. So stress releases cortisol okay. in humans, and then it has many different effects in the body, and it it interacts with the immune system. Cortisol in itself? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the kind of general idea behind the study I did was we experienced, like as humans, experience stress a lot. Mm -hmm. And we also are constantly exposed to microorganisms. Right. So the idea behind the experiment was, does stress activate the immune system so we are more responsive to microorganisms? So therefore, our cytokine levels would be higher and would create a sickness response. Mm-hmm. And that is very related to like depression because if you think about it, like a sickness response is like decreased motivation. You want to sleep all day. Right. Basically everything you feel when you're sick besides the fever. Yeah. So that's kind of like the background of the study. No, that, sound, that sounds very cool. That sounds very interesting. Now... Do you think there are any non-physiological factors that would allow stress to influence depression? Yes. Um, stress is incredibly complicated, and I'm definitely no expert. Yeah. I know it's really not well understood <laughs> at all. Yeah. The release of, like, cortisol um, in humans is controlled by a lot of different regions of the brain or um, region, like regions in the body. Mm-hmm. So 
you have a perceived psychological stress, like you're dreading work or something, that can signal to a part of your brain that releases hormones that'll eventually reach your adrenal gland to produce cortisol, Mm -hmm. and therefore you have increased cortisol. And then there's also just like other like physiological things. Um, Certain diseases cause increased cortisol levels. If you are like in a dangerous situation, you're gonna have increased cortisol. Right. Say you have a physical injury, you're gonna have increased cortisol because mm-hmm. that's the like response, like auto, your nervous system just reacting. Yeah. So it'll release the cortisol. Now you have a physical injury. Is there a spike in cortisol like right after the injury? Or is it something that's still produced, say, weeks afterwards? Um, it's recovery it's pretty immediate. It's immediate. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So what have you learned from the study so far? Is the original hypothesis so far looking to be true? or That's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially since I haven't finished all these uh, tissue regions that I've collected from rats. Right. But overall, we're kind of seeing that acute stress does not prime the immune system. Mm-hmm. So it has a high response to microorganisms. But there have been other work in other labs that say differently, but there were some differences. In our uh, study, we used um, just like straight E. coli. Yeah. But in the other studies, they used what are called lipopolysaccharides. Polysa- I've heard of polysaccharides before. Yeah. yeah so those are the things on like bacteria that will like say, hey, this isn't supposed to be in our body. And right. then your immune system will attack it. And they're also re- like related to like toxins that bacteria mm-hmm. releases that you know make you sick now what other labs are doing research like this my pi worked in a lab a while ago that looked into this okay. i'm not entirely sure if there's anyone who's specifically published data about this but he specifically has worked in a lab that did this study yeah that's awesome um now, what was your like main role in the lab what did you what did you do hands-on wise from the beginning we kind of like prepared like hundreds of like different tubes to put that will eventually like put tissues and stuff we collected from the rats in. Mm-hmm. But it's the biggest thing is we handled the rats. So like they get used to us touching them and that only takes a couple of days. Rats are actually pretty friendly. Really? Yeah. Mice, mice are the ones that are aggressive. Interesting. Yeah. Why is that? I think it'd be other, other, the other way around. I know. People view mice as like very cute. And have them as pets, then uh-huh. you rats is like, like yeah. monsters that chew through your yeah, house. Generally, like rats don't bite like people like people in laboratory settings. Hmm. It does happen, um, but I've gotten bit by mice many times. In, in, infected mice or not infected? <laughs> not infected mice. Okay. All of our all of our stuff like the animals have to be like like sp- clean, spotless, or okay. else they can't be used. <laughs> Good turn you into like mouse man or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Random thought as I'm drinking this Red Bull coming from someone who studies neuroscience what are the effects of caffeine? Are they positive? I've heard that they're positive I've heard that there's negative effects are there any bad, what are the, the effects of caffeine on the brain? So it has different effects on different people. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of research on people with like ADHD it actually makes you feel calmer yeah. Um, than rather like energized. That's but kind of the same thing with like Adderall. Yeah. It's like stimulants. Exactly. Yeah. People with ADHD, but they seem to have like a reverse effect on them. Mm-hmm. 
and I don't necessarily know why. Yeah. I haven't really looked into it. But the general idea is it doesn't make you tired because it blocks certain receptors in your brain. Um, I think it's in the... It's in the region of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Yeah, it's like the sleep, the sleep receptors. Yes, and circadian. Yeah, it's largely related to the brain region that controls circadian rhythms. Okay. And that, I don't know the exact receptor, like what exactly signals, but I know it blocks. It's an an adenosine form, like um, signaling molecule. So it could be like cyclic AMP, or it could be ATP. adenosine yeah adenosine. a2a receptors yeah yeah so like they they bind to those and they block okay. adenosine from binding to them and the the adenosine is what makes you tired right it'll like it'll it's not the only thing that makes you tired but it'll has a large effect so if it blocks that then you feel more energized but then right after the conf- caffeine you know goes away mm-hmm. you're gonna have that large buildup of adenosine yeah and then that's why you feel that crash okay that makes that makes that makes a lot of sense, actually. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting because I think a lot of people think caffeine is like, it's like something some magical powder goes into your brain and starts stimulates everything. <laughs> it's like something that's like going in to feed it, but really it's just it's just blocking. It's yeah. just Blocking out. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. I'm sure it has binds to like other regions of the brain and has other effects but that's the only one yeah. I, I know about so yeah that's the only one i know about too because I, I i i do like caffeine <laughs> <laughs> yes. so but i made sure to do um some a little bit of digging into it before you know just so i'm you know well aware of what i'm consuming yeah and yeah that's the same thing that i kind of find out uh what now what's the other research project you're working on um the in the other lab i'm working yeah. in so this other project studies the relationship of what are called endocannabinoids mm-hmm. and their role in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which we you know, control circadian rhythms. Yeah. Like it essentially, it's the like, it's called the master clock. The master clock. Yeah. What what it's the like. So like what it does is like you have all these different rhythms going on in your body of like. Um, you'll have certain protein, like cortisol is on a rhythm. Okay. So like it is essentially like the SCN signals and then eventually it'll reach the region of the body that produces cortisol Mm -hmm. and it'll tell it when to release. And that is like, so you have different levels of cortisol throughout the day. Yeah. And that's highest in the morning, like around 6 a.m., like 6 a.m. And then around that area, I think, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's when it starts like peaking. Okay. And then it decreases throughout the day. Now, this rhythm, is it based on, you know, like the time of the day, based on, you know, external factors? Like yeah, it's sun? it's based on like all external factors. Well, not all external factors. Um, there is what's called a free running period, mm-hmm. so when you have like no external stimuli, no light, no nothing, um, you go into what's called a free running period. Okay. And that's just your like biology running on a cycle, on its like natural limit, like, like a lot of times. And that's humans, that's about 24 hours. Okay. In mice, it's about 23.7 hours. And during, during this free running cycle? Yeah, free running cycle. They're like 
their circadian rhythm is like 23.7 hours. 23.7. And then in humans, it's like 24. And actually, when humans are in constant darkness, I think our free running periods actually get a little bit longer than 24 hours. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Why, why, why does it line up exactly with one day? That. Is it just like a coincidence? Um, probably has to do with like evolution and like the light light Cycle, light cycle, cycle. Yeah. yeah because the main thing that influences like circadian rhythms is light um, there's a direct connection from the eyes to the suprachiasmatic nucleus it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus mm-hmm. because it's directly above the optic chiasm which is made up of the crossing of optic nerves right so like optic nerves signal directly from the eyes to the SCN, mm-hmm. and then that has a whole bunch of implications there. Yeah. Now, that, that's interesting. As you'd think something like that would be different from person to person based off of, you know, like the s- sleep schedule. Mm-hmm. Like someone's 6 a.m. could be, you know, my noon, depending on when, yeah. when we get up. But I, that's interesting to think that it's it's based on um, light. Yeah. yeah. And, like, the, um, there's a whole bunch of things that like, disrupt us, like blue light at night. How does that disrupt us? Because I've heard a lot about that. Um, so basically, this blue light, it activates certain receptors in the eyes that will communicate with the SCN. Mm-hmm. So then, therefore, when you have this photic input, then it's saying, oh, it's daytime. I'm not supposed to be sleeping yet. Right. And that's what keeps you up. And it, right? like, disrupts your um, rhythms. And there's actually some interest, like interesting research really like somewhat related to the other stuff I'm researching is that like people work night shifts and they're constantly exposed to like light when they're supposed to be sleeping mm-hmm. have those increased um, cytokine levels so they're like in like a higher risk for depression yeah that's really that's that's interesting yeah. so I mean sleep plays a, a, a very important role in preventing depression mm-hmm. yeah what is the ideal time that we should you know put the phones down when it starts getting darker Okay. The best thing to do is start dimming the lights in your house around, like, when it officially gets dark, then that's when you should put your phone down. Yeah. That doesn't mean you have to go to bed, but... Just turn the lights off. Like, read, yeah, like, read a, read a book yeah. or something. And, like, you can do, like, different kinds of light that don't show, like, have large amounts of, like, the blue light. Do you know who Dr. Andrew H- Huberman is? No. He is a um, neuroscience professor over at Stanford, and he has a, a really interesting podcast. It's similar to this one, actually. It's a lot more. Um, it's a lot more science uh, focused, and, and he has a lot like of other really in depth. Yeah, yeah, and he has a lot more uh, like neuroscientists on. But he was. He said I listened to his podcast because I take a lot of inspiration away from him. Mm-hmm. He was saying something like, "As soon as you get up, you want to expose yourself to natural light yeah. as soon as possible." Yeah. Yeah. And you're like you're supposed to just be waking up from natural light. I know there's like been a lot of studies and like people just feel so much better just from waking up. Like, yeah. okay, I'm up now, versus like when you have an alarm, you like dread getting up. Right. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just that nasty noise like banging into your yeah. ear and everything. It's not a not a great way to start the day. Right. Not a great way at all. So like, what do you think the ideal time to get up would be? A little after dawn. Like a little I after mean, dawn. Kind of like when the light gets a little brighter. Yeah. Now, what about just your understanding of the circadian rhythm in general? 
what do you think the ideal daily schedule would be like in terms of, you know, getting up, eating, and, you know, going to bed? Um, I mean, you eat, like, right away. Right away? I think. Okay. Lunch. It, I, don't, I don't know the best advice for this necessarily, but kind of when your body says you're hungry. Right. Um, yeah. Just, just and then you don't want to stuff yourself. Mm-hmm. Because, like, after eating, you probably want to be slightly still feel a little bit hungry. Yeah. And lunch, I think, should be the biggest meal. Right. And then dinner, probably a couple hours, maybe, like, four hours before bed. Four hours before bed. I Personally, I found that's my favorite thing. And I know you mentioned to just kind of listen to the signals of your body. Mm-hmm. There was a really interesting course that I took here called Intuitive Eating. Have you heard of that? No. It's a it's a new theory, and it's kind of um, it's based on anti diet culture, basically. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I know a lot of the diet plans say, you know, you can only eat this certain amount, you can only eat certain foods, you can only eat at certain time periods, you can't eat between this time and this time, and it's teaching you to ignore the signals of your body and then try and reprogram your brain right. based on a schedule. Now, the theory of intuitive eating basically says that statistically diets don't work. And in a lot of cases, people actually end up gaining weight from diets long term. I think it's a very interesting theory. They're com- coming from my perspective. I used to, I used to be uh, over 200 pounds and I lost close to 80, I think, wow. in, in total. So, but I mean, and I did not, I didn't eat intuitively. I ate, you know, on a, on a structured, on a structured plan, a very high caloric deficit. I, I'm, it's not, it's not healthy. It wasn't healthy. I could tell you that, but you know, coming from that, I have certain doubts about intuitive eating theory in terms of like, if this is really the best way to lose weight, but there's a lot of strengths to it as well. I think there's more strengths than weaknesses and I, it's a really interesting theory overall, but I mean, basically just talks about, um, rejecting you know, the diet mentality, honoring your hunger. So, I mean, you know, if you're hungry, eat, just listen to the signals of your body. And like you said, don't stuff yourself, still feel a little hungry after you eat on top of that. Making peace with food, not feeling guilty after, you know, having one piece of chocolate and then, you know, creating that feeling of self-doubt and wanting to give up on yourself. Right. And another like thing to factor in is each person needs like different levels of protein or different levels of fats or like sugars and stuff. Yeah. So, So. yeah, I mean, everyone's, everyone's needs are different. Right. Everyone's needs are different. And then some, the one, there's like, there's like 10, 10 principles of the theory. Um, I only listed the ones that I think stand out. And then the one that I, I really enjoyed learning about, and I tried, and I've been doing this for my meals, but it's trying to get the the fullest sensory experience out of your meal. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, normally, like, we, we eat at lunch, and, you know, we, we got music playing, and we're watching something, and we're just, like, eating as fast as we can. And a lot of times, like, you should be able to recall what you had for breakfast, you know? Right. A lot of times, people need to think about that for a minute. I said, treat treat food, treat eating as an experience, and you're going to be able to enjoy it a lot more. So, I mean, just find a peaceful place. Don't go on your phone or anything, and just take time eating. Take time to chew your food, and 
<laughs> for one of our activities, we had to journal, like, the t we were chewing it. And as we were chewing the food, we had to journal what we were experiencing in that moment <laughs> and like write down the senses or write down the flavors. And they, and they said, yeah, that that will like really enhance your relationship <coughs> with food. So interesting. I thought, yeah, that 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 was very interesting. And yeah, I think I think. I honestly, sort of I sort of did that earlier with uh, Jimmy John's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was really well, good. well, anytime you go to Jimmy John's, you got to appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think I think. I, weight loss is another story, but I really think ideally for people just, you know, trying to live a healthy lifestyle, that's the best way to do it. Yeah. You know, just listen to your body. Right. Don't, don't stress about diet culture. Right. And just, yeah, eat, eat intuitively. I think that's really important. Yeah. So you said you were on the pre-medical track. Yes. Why'd you pick neuroscience as your undergrad specifically? First took a course of psychology in high school. I was like, wow, this stuff is really cool. Yeah. But... I also suffer from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. and like I have a lot of depressive symptoms and anxiety, yeah. and that's largely where a lot of this comes from because I want to understand what's happening to me and other people. Mm -hmm. So, do you think studying this has given you a lot better understanding of it? For sure. Yeah. And it just like it's kind of like inspiring me. Like, hey, there's still a lot of unknown stuff here. What exactly is going on, and what can we figure out to possibly help people that are going through it? Right. I mean, yeah, the opportunities in this field are endless. Uh, it's people like you are who are going to make a, dig a big difference. I appreciate that. Building the foundation, you know, and it's going to change a lot of people's lives, I think. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's been some of the coolest stuff that you've learned studying this and then, you know, doing your research? Really, it's just like learning all the different, like, things that are going on inside the brain. I still know, like, so little, like, mm -hmm. about the brain. There's so many different, like, um, little bundles of neurons that have all these different functions that yeah. affect other parts of the brain. Then that'll like there's there's so it's all so interconnected and just one small thing can affect have like a cascade signaling effect in your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean the brains the brains a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. It's like an organic computer in a way. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And it's so cool that it's so cool that we don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's. One of the world's greatest mysteries is just sitting in our heads. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, it's one of the most, I think, fascinating fields in medicine and, and biology is, is studying is For studying sure. that. For sure. Yeah. So what, what special did you say you wanted to go into in medical school? I, I, um, I know you said it was kind of an emerging field. Circadian medicine, but I want to... Mm -hmm still focus largely on like mental illness or neurological diseases yeah and there's actually been a lot of research on circadian rhythms and their role in degenerative diseases like uh, alzheimer's and mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis um, and some other ones i know there's um been a pretty big one of the leading um researchers in the circadian field he studied glioblastoma. What's that? Brain cancer, essentially. And he studied, like, the rhythm of these, like, cancer cells in the brain. And I don't remember exactly what he found, but yeah, um, I think it was something to do with, like, when, like, it is best to, like, um, give, like, treatment to kill these cancer cells and stuff like that. But I'm sure there was a lot more that I'm just not remembering. I was... Listen to him talk uh, 
probably over a year ago now. Okay. So in, in like a, a conference? Um, he actually talked here at Kent State. Really? I think so. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any other upcoming like neuroscience conferences or s- um, conferences in general that you're aware of? Yeah, there's actually on the 28th and the 29th, there's going to be um, a neuroscience symposium. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, um, is it like research stuff? Yeah. It's going to I'm, gonna I'm not going to present uh, it. No. Why not? I've already presented my stuff at a conference, like this one yeah. um, that I did for sure. I'm not finished with, and I'm not going to be finished by then. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I really have enough for like a big kind of thing like that because – it's for the Brain Health Research Institute, okay. and it's like celebrating the contributions Kent State has given to the neuroscience field. Yeah, you presented yesterday too. I did. Yeah. <laughs> we both presented yesterday with our, our three minute thesis. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know what a three minute thesis is, it's basically where we stand in front of a panel of judges and peers, and then we give a summary of our research in three minutes. Um, and we both did that yesterday. So how do you think that went? I think I did all right. I had to present twice because the first time I was really anxious and mm-hmm. I just st- like froze and it's like, can I take a break? Yeah. And then the second time I did pretty good. But I know I lost some points because I definitely went over three minutes and I probably lost some points for like other things on my poster. So, mm-hmm. but I was just happy to like talk about it. Oh yeah. I, it's um, you know, we spend so much time working on this. I mean, you know, this is our, like, like this project is, you know, one the, like my, my research projects are some of the, my most proudest things that I've, I've done, you know what I mean? Right. But, you know, we spend so much time working on it and so little time um, communicating it and advertising it and sharing it with the world. Moments like those, like with the three-minute thesis and the symposium, and, you know, even having this, this that's the reason I started the podcast. Right. Um, it's its really cool to be able to have those moments to uh, express what you're so proud of. Right. In doing. Yeah. So, yeah, it was cool. The I was actually under three minutes. Uh, I was, he had cards, and when there was 10 seconds left to go, he flashes the red card. Right. And then as soon as he flashed the red card, I said my last line. <laughs> of, because I mem- I didn't bullet point. I memorized it completely. Yeah. And, like, I killed it. But it was at 10 minutes. And then I see the red card. And then I'm, I just go, um. <laughs> Examples of that can include. And then I just repeated my last two lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think I even looked at the cards. I was just kind of forgot it. <laughs> that was on a time limit. Yeah. Well, was that your fir- was that your first time presenting? No, it was my first time doing a three minute presentation. Yeah. Which is really just I don't think it's enough time. But well, that's that's why they do it. Yeah. It's, it's you're just trying to like just kind of cut to the chase. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't know, I like explaining the background in depth. Well, yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot more that we need to talk about in the three right. minutes that, right. that's given. But yeah. um, I've presented at a. A big conference. Um, it's called uh, Society for Research on Biological Rhythms. Or okay. SRBR. I was. It's a biannual meeting. Um, and it ha- I was in there May, and I presented my uh, research on the effect of like endocannabinoids on the circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. How'd that one go? The results of the experiment or the presentation? Both. The results still kind of preliminary 
basically, I'm, I'm going to repeat it mm-hmm. um, with like a higher dose of a drug because we saw, um, without getting into the details of the experiment, there was like not a response in females, but there's a response in males, but it wasn't significant. But it also matches with like other data in the lab. So we're going to increase this dose that the mice would be receiving. So then we can say, huh, this definitely is something going on. Yeah. Now, how did the uh, how the presentation in general go? I practiced a lot. It was it was really really cool, really good. Mm-hmm. I was, there's only a couple undergraduates there, but there's like each night there's like hundreds of posters. There's like aisles and aisles of just poster boards. Really? Yeah. That must have been cool to see all there's of that. Like, I saw some really cool presentations from like Harvard, Stanford, really? UCLA. Yeah. There's wow. Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a so many cool so many cool things going on yeah well what was like some of the coolest projects you saw the one that sticks out to me was this guy from harvard Mm -hmm. he was basically researching uh electrical input to the supercharismatic nucleus from like light yeah and basically what he was finding is that like signals to the entire supercharismatic nucleus which is kind of weird because there's like multiple layers of the um, the SCN, and they both have different functions. So it's like all this input ha- goes into it all at the same time, but then and then the next half is like of his research that he's going to look into is like what happens after that in these different regions. Yeah. So I thought that was like really cool. That's, <laughs> the, ne- that's the next step in his research to mm-hmm. see what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's like basically what do these regions do with this input? Mm-hmm. So, that would be interesting to look into. Yeah, you think it's out now? I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna actually check. Could be. I'm gonna check afterwards. I don't remember the the guy's name that was yeah. doing it. No, that that's that sounds really cool. Now, what do you think doing research in general has taught you? And you know, in terms of not only your academic journey, but just with life in general. Um, it's kind of taught me like a different view of the world, saying like, um, kind of like where. Like, you can research all these different things, but is it that important? Like, is it going to have implications in, like, human life? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that's, I don't necessarily know how to explain that further, but it's just kind of, like, just interesting, like, um, thinking, hey, that might be something worth looking into. Yeah. A lot of people do research in general just to expand human knowledge in itself right and i've noticed a lot of projects they go by the wayside you know just brushed along and people are like oh that's cool but mm-hmm. it doesn't ha- really have any effect on us right and sometimes sometimes a publication will um and there's some pretty cool stuff that can be built off of that yeah sometimes it sits on the shelf for 50 years right and is used again by either another academic or someone who wants to build something off of that and then sometimes it just yeah is addressed or is just brushed by the wayside yeah. it just sits Sits on Google Scholar forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, sometimes, like, experiments need to be conducted just for, like, scientific reasons, just to, like, compare. Maybe that's why we got this result. But it has no implications in, on, like, people or the right. real world. Right. Now, do you still think it's Im- important to contu- conduct research like that? Or should we still focus th- more I of our efforts on human? Both. I think impact? they're both incredibly important mm-hmm. because it may allow us to say maybe we're doing something wrong and like 
doing that purely for like scientific purposes to compare to another experiment yeah. will show maybe we need to change something so it can have um, more of an impact, like be more relevant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Now, you think you're still going to do, you said you're going to medical school. Yeah. Um, I don't actually just want to go to medical school. Mm-hmm. I plan on applying for an MD, PhD program. Oh, that's yeah. going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be fun. I actually, I used to be on the, the pre-medical route. Uh, my first year I was here mm-hmm. and I started doing research and I wanted to do that as my career. And everyone told me, they're like, oh, you should get a dual MD, PhD program. <laughs> Big respect doing that. I mean, yeah. pe- people with the MD, PhD, I mean, they rule the world. You know what I mean? You're going to have a lot of opportunities with that. But Hopefully. My, my brain does not work that fast. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to switch uh, for just the, the, the PhD. Yeah. Based, based on what I know, it's mostly research work and then like probably 70% research and mm-hmm. then 30% caring for patients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just based on like, um, I've talked to a few MD PhDs and that's kind of what they said it's like. What, what other stuff did you learn from the MD PhDs when you were talking to them? I mean, I was kind of, when I talked to them, I was kind of asking just like the why they did it. Um, and like what benefit has it had what is their like daily life like mm-hmm. kind of just because you know that would be my life as well right and they kind of just said like it's going to be like a lot of bench work lab stuff it's like as if you're like a grad student like doing like um data analysis or okay. like you're doing like performing like biological assays on like tissues you collected or something like mm-hmm. Kind of doing that like really like gritty work yeah. in the lab overall they kind of the one person described it as you're trying to get the pay of a doctor while doing the work of a researcher what do you mean by that so researchers don't make that much money true <laughs> so, most of them yeah but doctors you know make a ton uh-huh so um so that's that's the way she described her job. So you still get paid the salary of a doctor, oh, for, yeah. but you're doing research work. Yeah. Okay. Cause you also treat patients. And if you don't have a lot of patients to treat, then you can, you know, focus more on your lab work. Or right. if you don't have a grant, um, to do your research, you can kind of fall back on, um, treating patients. And yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying, like, yeah, the opportunities, they seem endless with mm-hmm. those two. Now, why would you recommend doing research to other undergraduate students? I mean, it, it's just r- kind of like makes your mind think in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, just helps you grow new perspectives. Um, and it, for me, kind of helped fill that like creative, um, adventurous side of me. Yeah. So like I just... You know, like delve deep into whatever I'm looking into and like find out like secrets or something. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's just, uh, you know, makes me feel good and alive. Yeah. No, that's, th- people don't realize, I mean, yeah, research is a creative field. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think a lot of people realize that, mm-hmm. but research is, <laughs> is very creative. And I know like with my coursework, 
that was another one of the things that pushed me to focus specifically on research is, you know, I was learning all this stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, biology within chemistry and was more interested in how it worked rather than, than memorizing it. Oh yeah. And I mean, I got, I and, got frustrated. And like, that's how it should be taught is right. sh like showing like how it works and like actually seeing the things happening. Yeah. And I mean, you're just, you're just, you're just fed a large amount of surface material stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's so much more interesting when you when you dive deeper into it and figure out why it is this way yeah why this works how this has a relation to that and i mean yeah i kind of got frustrated because i was i would be studying for an exam mm -hmm. and you know i was focused on memorizing this memorizing that memorizing that and i wanted to figure out why that did that but it wasn't just wasn't an efficient use of time you know right. what i mean yeah to to go into the textbook and then read this and then read the whole chapter because that wasn't going to be on the exam. So like, if that's not on the exam, then like, why would I care about it? Right. But I mean, yeah, diving more into diving into things more in depth and getting creative with the way that you think about science and things. I, I mean, yeah, that's why research I think is really cool. Yeah. Hunter, if you had one more message to share with the world, what would it be? The most important thing is like your health and happiness and like, um, shouldn't necessarily try and do too much say like too much research or anything because i mean if it like for me i can get too caught up in it and it just mm -hmm. actually makes me feel bad doing it so kind of just really take the time to figure out what you need what your needs are and fulfill those first yeah yeah, yeah I, I i think like people like us and we're working to better the lives of people, improve the health of, you know, our population. But then we're so passionate about that that we forget about ourselves. And we need to remember that our own health is just as important as improving the health of others. Yeah, for sure. So if we don't take care of ourselves, yeah, and we don't perform to the best of our abilities, yeah. then, you know, our work and is going to show that. Yeah. And I mean, it's like it, like you don't have your needs met it's going to affect like probably the most important things which are like your relationships and mm -hmm. um yeah the things you care most about yeah yeah and you like you said you get so caught up in it yeah and other parts of your personal life are going by the wayside and you don't even realize it in the moment but then you get that you get that sort of little bit of break in your research or whatever you're focusing on and then you look back at it and you're like oh yeah you know that was it is that like really worth it yeah but and i know like sometimes i feel guilty for like taking time to like meet my needs and like i, I shouldn't nobody should yeah you're like you deserve your your needs are like basic like they have to be met essentially mm -hmm. and it's okay if they don't always get met but it's important to like before moving on after having a period of not having them met, you need to really kind of get, get settled. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, I mean, it's awesome that you've realized that. I think there's a lot of brilliant people who don't. And, you know, in the long run, that's actually holding them back. Yeah. So, I mean, given your knowledge and what you're studying, given your passion, and then also having a good understanding of yourself and, you know, what's able to give you the best ability to, uh, to produce your work, I think that's going to, you know, bring you a far way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, 
Hunter, it's been awesome having you on. You're welcome back anytime. Again, this is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to inspire. Peace out.